Welcome to this one-of-a-kind podcast, which marks 20 years of hard-fought campaigns by Sense About Science to put sound science and evidence at the heart of public life, and to equip people to ask searching questions about the decisions that affect our lives. I'm taking this moment to ask where we are now, what we need to do next, and what's threatening the gains we've made in transparency and scientists being willing to speak to the public and in open discussions about evidence. After the pandemic and amid discussions about climate change and energy and other science-based issues, how do we look at science? Has it become a stick to beat people or a good way of finding out what the hell is going on? And I've enlisted some of the big characters in that journey. We'll be hearing from them what they thought we gained and lost, how optimistic they are that scientific research has moved from an in-club to a public good. Some years ago, quite early in my time at Sense About Science, I made a shocking discovery. Everybody involved in drug policy, including the Home Secretary and senior police, were openly critical in private about the way that illicit drugs were classified and its effect on generating more crime around drug-taking. Naive at that time about how public decisions were made, I suppose I'd believed that everyone involved was blind to evidence or that they opposed it on principle. What had not occurred to me was that they knew that the policy didn't work and that the classifications of drugs made little sense in terms of pharmacology or evidence of harms. But they felt the public needed to hear something different. Well, initially flattered that I was trusted with these more revealing thoughts, I grew angry. With reasoning and evidence behind the curtain, what hope could we have of a better public debate? It was utterly disempowering of the people. It gave up on them before anyone had even attempted a discussion or an argument. This was a formative experience in developing the work of Sense About Science. It drove me to seek out others whose business is empowering people with science and evidence. From its inception, Sense About Science has been an advocate for equipping people with useful questions about evidence. People have to be able to ask, how well does this answer the question? What questions haven't been asked? And how reliable is this fact or finding or statistic? Sense About Science has seen the energy of thousands behind its efforts to equip people with good questions about evidence over the years. Their actions have driven changes in public life, rules and regulations, and they've challenged the idea that science is a club. But as Sense About Science's 20th anniversary wafted by in the tail end of the pandemic, I felt increasingly concerned that the democratic, empowering, critical thinking impulses of the popularisers of science are battling it out afresh with a more top-down and dogmatic view. The science says to which many people say, shut up then, and that perhaps we need to restate the human value of scientific inquiry and open, critical discussion of evidence. Perhaps there's actually more opportunity to do this now. I decided to revisit some of the important people in that journey and see what they make of this moment. Vivian Tseng is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Child Development. She's been flying the flag for research into education that would benefit parents and teachers for over two decades, previously at the William T. Grant Foundation, which is where we met. Vivian, you and I kind of bonded over a decade ago in a sunny room in New York over frustrations that the movement for evidence-based policy was just too exclusive that the findings of research were kind of not owned by the subjects of the research, much less addressing their questions. 
Yeah, that's right. I remember that meeting very well because I had spent my career in research because I wanted research to make a difference in the world and especially to marginalized communities and students. And here we were in a situation which was supposed to be you know, the, the golden age of evidence being used, but instead it was being used in very top-down ways. So, for example, there was a push from the federal government to push evidence-based programs into schools and to incentivize schools to adopt programs that had evidence of effectiveness from randomized controlled trials. So it was a certain type of evidence that was highly valued by federal policymakers. But communities and schools and teachers often felt like, well, those programs are not necessarily what works best for us, for our kids, for our students. And yet there were all these strings attached to them. And at the same time, there was a big push around teacher evaluation. So using data to evaluate teachers. Many teachers around the country thought that the data was a political tool that was being used to fire and hire teachers. I remember us talking about your fear of a backlash, the prospect that the data could be used to empower people to make good decisions, but a fear that actually we were going to frighten people off from looking at evidence, using research as a way of improving practice because of the way that it was being used in this political setting. A lot of the data that was being used for teacher evaluation were students' test scores. So it's basically data on the outcomes. But that kind of evidence is not necessarily useful to teachers who are trying to figure out, well, what can I do differently? We were frustrated and worried that people would be put off, but we weren't the only ones. There were others who joined us in that concern and it began to feel like a moment when we could start talking about democratizing the tools of research and of critical thinking. Yes. What was exciting about it is that there were all these other people who came from different segments in different communities who also shared this frustration that research had too often been elite, elitist, and top-down. So there were all these critiques about research being extractive, about drive-by research where academics would drop into schools or low-income communities. I love that phrase, drive-by research. That exactly gets it. Yeah, they drive by, they pick up some data, and then they drive out. And the findings that they come up with never return back to the community. Or let's say they share it in a presentation, but it's not shared back in any meaningful way that actually benefits the lives of the people who shared their experiences, sometimes their saliva, their time and their energy. And so I think this democratizing evidence that really struck a chord with folks who had been thinking and already working on ways that researchers could work in collaboration with communities. They were thinking about how do we put data in the hands of communities and of parents so they can use that data to go advocate for the kind of change in schools that they want to see for their kids. So not just how to democratize the production of evidence, but also to democratize the use of evidence. If evidence can be a source of power, who gets to wield it? Do you feel that we've made progress? Do you feel that communities of teachers and parents now might think that there is a research route to answering things that are frustrating them? I definitely think we've made progress. It's still not commonplace 
And what happened in education hasn't happened in a vacuum. There's been a wider kind of social shift, hasn't there, towards people looking to research and, and seeing the impact of research on their lives. I mean, obviously, the pandemic sped that up really dramatically. Where do you think we are now? Well, I think that what lies ahead is thinking about democratizing evidence in a way that also drives equity and justice in society, meaning those people and communities who have been systematically disenfranchised come to the table because it's easier for certain segments of the public than it is for others. And I, so I think our goal next is to make sure that there's more equity there. Figuring out in the first place, what are the questions that we need researched? And too often, researchers have talked to each other about what questions need to be researched, when more often, researchers should be talking to the people they want to be the beneficiaries of the research about what the questions are that we need to be asking. Vivian said there was a lot of distance to cover for people to see evidence as something that enables them. And a key step in doing that was getting people producing the evidence to think differently. I was astonished to find a similar view in one of the corridors of the UK government. Ed Humpherson is the National Statistics Regulator. Ed, when I met you, which I believe was as the UK was taking stock of the Brexit vote, I have to admit I was very sceptical about official bodies helping people with evidence, believing they choose what's convenient to count. I was quite taken aback, actually, with how interested you seem to be in the public's questions. It's always been the biggest part of my role is when members of the public are concerned about something, they can raise a concern with us as the, the statistics regulator, and we will always look into it. And I always have felt that's a real privilege and a responsibility. And can I just give an example of what I mean? We deal with people concerned about migration or inflation, but we also deal with things which are very important to them in their lives. An example of something we've done recently is anglers, and they're concerned about the way in which the evidence on which fishing licenses are being granted to fish in rivers. They're concerned that that evidence is, is incomplete. And we looked into that case with as much seriousness as one of those more kind of high profile issues, because for them, it is the most important thing. Evidence really does matter to people in specific contexts, the things that they are doing in their lives. And it's not really for us to judge what's important or not. It's for them to judge what's important. Do you take measures to be sure that statistics are answering people's questions? We do biannual survey every two years of public confidence in official statistics. That shows very high levels of confidence amongst our respondents. I think I'd, I'd always take that with a little bit of a pinch of salt because there may be kind of areas where people are concerned that they're, they're not coming forward in the survey. More importantly, are there gaps which are emerging when people are concerned they can't get to the answers that they want to, to get to? We did a lot of work on gaps around care home data. This is before the pandemic, uh, 2018, 2019. We were really concerned that the delivery of social care was really underrepresented in statistics, even though it's a really massive part of some people's lives. Indeed, what then happened in the pandemic revealed there was actually quite a lot of data gap around that, which had not very positive consequences. It's not just you, though. This is big business, producing evidence, producing government evidence. Have we got a hill to climb here? 
in terms of persuading others that they're in the business of answering questions rather than just producing stuff? I mean, is that something that you see yourself as internally? Am I stepping too far? No, no. I think that I think there are two hills to climb. Actually, the first hill is to persuade the people responsible for producing evidence within government departments that what they do is not simply kind of reflecting the administrative priorities of the department they're in, but they're, they're serving a wider public. That's quite a tough hill to climb, but we've climbed it. They've absorbed this this kind of real public good notion of statistics. The second hill to climb, which is much bigger, is convincing their parent body departments, the top of the departments, the permanent secretaries, the directors general, that data are not simply for them to make their decisions. They're a public asset. I think there's there's sometimes a gap between a rhetoric in which people in senior roles always say they're led by the data and what I think of as a reality is being data being used to kind of signal whether your own priorities are being met as opposed to data being something which is open and available informing the public. There's also a question of trust here, isn't there? Ministers turn around and really want to rely on that at times when the numbers are really solid and then find that actually because they have been rather selective about the numbers that they show, it's hard to have it both ways. Absolutely right. The point I make when we meet politicians, I I would say, you know, what you want to get to the position of is when people believe you when you've got good news to tell. And they're not going to believe that if you only allow what you perceive as the favourable news to come out, because people are just going to be suspicious about it. You're much better to have an even handed approach, trustworthy approach, which says whatever the data are, we'll make them available. We're not going to overly constrain what's made available. You're never going to have any difficulty getting people to believe bad news. You want them to sometimes believe things are working, but they're not going to do that if they think you're overly constraining the release of bad news. The other thing we might also look at here is if people can believe you on the numbers, but perhaps disbelieve you on the what you propose to do about it, then we're in a good place, aren't we? Because we're all talking the same language. Yeah, exactly. And I always think that that's a, such an important point in my work, which is that you you want to detach the evidence and the numbers from the kind of policy proposition of what to do about them. It's not just about kind of an empirical, technocratic here's the evidence and therefore this is the answer. Values and perceptions and persuasion come into it and that's that's good and healthy. It's just not the same thing as the underlying evidence and data. And I think when we can separate those things, I think we see the value of politics for what they are. Actually, politicians are great. They're really good at synthesising lots of different insights of which evidence and data are only one. But you can't do that if they try and co-opt the data into being something that it's not. That's the essence of my work is sort of insulating the evidence so it stands on its own two feet and is separate from the persuasive dynamic of, of, of policymaking. Let's look at that from the public point of view. We saw during COVID that people began to see the world in numbers. Yeah. And there was kind of one discussion going on about whether policies were working okay, keeping people safe, were too much. And then there was another discussion, it seemed to me, that did connect with it, but was also people just tracking what was going on, trying to make sense of their world in numbers. Do you think we might have turned a corner in that? I mean, we saw levels of engagement with, with the statistics being produced by the Office of National Statistics. Do you think that's something that will stay with us now? Uh, Yes and no. So if you'd have asked me that a year ago, I'd have said, I think this has been a really significant shift 
in perceptions of two audiences, two communities. One community is the, the broad public who have had this intense process of seeing the world in numbers. I, that's your phrase, Tracy. I, I really like that phrase. And then secondly, a shift in government to recognise how useful and powerful it is not only to have data yourselves, but to, to make it available, make the evidence on which you are making decisions available to others. That's what the COVID dashboard really was doing. So, yes, I think there is that that shift in recognising is important. My no is that I do think there's a there's been a tendency within government to learn not quite the full lesson of that process. Tendency to say it's great when we've got numbers. It helps us understand the world. Uh we want dashboards available in our high-powered briefing rooms where we can touch a button and find out all manner of things. I think a little bit less of recognising how powerful it is to make that almost as available to the public as it is to the decision maker. Uh, so I think I think it's almost, almost only half, not the full story, uh, and still maybe an overly strong desire to control the data and therefore to control your perception of the narrative within government. And uh, we, we really push against that. We have, as you know, Tracy, we have a whole programme called Intelligent Transparency, which is encouraging government to recognise the, the points that you can, you can make data equally available to all. And that's really in everybody's interests, yours and the public's. I'd like to know what, what you think about the scope for that with the public. I'm always being told that I'm too aspirational in relation to whether people can grasp numbers, can use yeah. them effectively. Do you think statistics enable people from different backgrounds to speak in the language of evidence? So does it help? Does it mean that we can have a more inclusive discussion? Well, I believe it does. And at particular points in people's lives, certain kinds of evidence become incredibly powerful and important to them. And they they can go through very many rapid stages of learning and familiarity and become quite expert because it matters to them and they they sort of lose this instinctive recoil in the face of numbers. So I am a sceptic of the argument that because not everybody has high levels of numeracy, therefore communicating to people in numbers won't work because people won't understand what a percentage is. You hear that a lot. And I think there's I think that's false. I think it may be true that people have low levels of numeracy in terms of being able to work out the, you know, the area under the triangle and that kind of stuff. But they have the critical thinking skills on topics that they care about to quickly grasp and understand that. I think your work, Tracy's just been such a powerful lesson to us all there. Thank you. <laughs> I'm always struck by not such a highfalutin example, but I remember the debates around how to label food products and a lot of professional people debating whether or not the ordinary working man, as, as people would say in those days, could understand you know, statistics and odds and various things. And uh, and I just thought, well, you've never walked into a betting shop quite yeah, clearly. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. The motivation's there. You can understand an awful lot. But I think it's actually thinking about that. So if it's the case, and we both seem to agree, it is that people, when motivated, can really you know, put the work in. Clearly, there's nothing to object to in ensuring that we educate people in schools effectively. We equip people for the modern world. But perhaps there's more that can be done also just in equipping people when they need to be part of a discussion. Are you an optimist? I'm definitely an optimist. I'm an optimist because we have got really good evidence now that people do engage with data and evidence appropriately in a sophisticated way 
we've got evidence that the people who provide the data and, and, and evidence, the producers, if you will, with the with the right incentives and the right regulation uh, from us, are really keen to do the right thing. I'm also an optimist that I, I don't think it's inevitable that the bad data win. I really don't. I think there's plenty of grounds to say we're in a world in which it's actually easier to expose falsehoods, not not harder. I'm not I'm an optimist, which means that I can just go off to the beach and just forget about all the hard work. It's going to take work by me, by my team, by you, Tracy, by all the civil society organisations. As a, as a society and a community, we need to work at this stuff to stop people being disengaged and rejecting and even believing misinformation. But I'm an optimist that if we put the effort in, we can prevail. So there's a public appetite for evidence. But not all evidence is useful. A data dump helps no one. In fact, it makes things worse. A clear example of this was in the late 90s and the noughties, when there was a lot of distrust around the retention of children's organs by hospitals, a lot of distrust between parents and patient groups and clinical practitioners. And the government's response to this was a kind of data dump, complex information about surgical outcomes, enabling parents ostensibly to make up their own minds. What that led to was parents taking very sick children across the country in search of better outcomes following heart surgery. So David Spiegelhalter and Christina Pagel, statisticians at Cambridge and UCL, wanted to improve on that. They came to Sense About Science to ask how to get something better across to the public. David, tell us your thoughts when you saw the mess that had emerged from that standoff between parents and government and doctors. Yeah, well, I felt quite strongly about this because I had been deeply involved in the Bristol Royal Infirmary Inquiry at the end of the 1990s when many babies died who really shouldn't have died at Bristol Royal Infirmary with the heart surgery. And uh, I was gave a lot of evidence and there in the front row were the parents of what were actually the victims of this. And I was very moved by their dignity and yet their, their strong feeling that they wanted to understand what was going on. Now, we were presenting quite complex statistical evidence, but we made a real effort, and that was appreciated. And I think that made me realise that you can put over, with a lot of effort and engagement, some really quite subtle statistical ideas. And when it comes to comparing institutions, just for example, just simply on mortality rates, this is not simple. It's a disaster to think that you can just calculate mortality rates and produce a league table and say who's best and who's worst and who's seventh and this. This is nonsense. It really is. But that is that is what people were doing, isn't it? That is what people were doing when making those comparisons. Exactly. So this whole league table mentality that existed at that time, both whether it's schools or hospitals, is completely disastrous and statistically unjustified for two main reasons. First of all is that you're not comparing like with like in that some hospitals just take on more severe patients quite reasonably and in a way, they have to be compensated for that. So all you're doing is comparing all the time. If you are going to make a comparison of a hospital, it needs to be compared with a sort of expected mortality. Were those babies to go to an average hospital elsewhere? But those babies, so it has to be adjusted for the case mix, as we say, which is a completely sensible, reasonable and understood idea. The other issue is is small numbers. The fact that by chance alone, I don't 
we'll come to the wording later of how we refer to the fact that there is just unpredictability, variability. And we know that as statisticians, if you're looking at any hospital is not doing a huge number of operations per year. And so there's a lot of just by, you know, what you might call, well, I could call random variation, but I wouldn't use that term to families. But it means that the numbers, mortality rates can just go up or down without actually you know, indicating that a hospital is good or bad or getting worse or getting better. So those two issues are crucially important. With your plan to adjust for that, to challenge the league tables, you came to us at Sense About Science and asked, how do we involve the parents? How do we make sure that what we produce comes across to them and is usable by them? And we suggested, let's get the parents involved right from the very beginning. One of those parents was Alex Smith. Let's hear from Alex. Georgina was born with a congenital heart defect. And we didn't discover this until she was two and a half. So I was looking at finding out about information on how the hospitals were doing with their surgery results. But trying to find this information was really difficult. The NHS website didn't really update very often with their information. So it was very tricky to navigate and find out information that would give me a clear message on how these outcomes were calculated I just felt very overwhelmed so I got involved with the Sense About Science project looking at setting up a website where you could obtain information easily about hospitals and their outcomes and we looked at how the information would be presented to parents because when you're in flux of having to make that decision about your child you need something you can understand easily and quickly without having to trawl through all the medical speak to get to the information you really need. There was a lot of discussion about how we should present the numbers of the outcomes and we managed to come up with an idea of actually having a graph which had different colours in it which would show you very quickly where the hospital sat for their surgery outcomes. I'm extremely proud to have been able to have had the opportunity to help the website be made and to actually help it portray information across to parents in a clear way that parents can understand. When you're thrown into making a decision about a surgery, you need something quick and easy. And to have been able to help do that for other parents, I think that, for me, has been a really lovely thing to have been involved in. David, what Alex is talking about is giving context to risk. And that's what they did, isn't it? I mean, were you surprised by how well they handled some of these difficult concepts that you and Christina were introducing? To be honest, I wasn't surprised because my experience had shown that this is a highly motivated group of people who want to understand things and are not going to be put up with being fobbed off on some oversimplistic conclusions. And so I was moved, I think. And remember, you also we also set it up with journalists as well. So we had different groups of people we were talking to, feeding back, constant feedback, constant revisions, rapid prototyping. It's a very exciting experience. I mean, some of it is very tricky tricky. How can you present this data graphically in a way that people can grasp? And, and in the end, 
actually, I think we did quite well. You don't rank the hospitals and you give their just their mortality rate, but the numbers to make it clear whether it's, you know, two out of 100 or 20 out of 1,000, that's rather different. And then you put, you put that as a dot because people like to see the raw data. That is actually the data. We know how many babies actually died. But then you show where that dot is relative to what we call the goalposts, which is what you would expect the mortality rate to be, allowing for the variability. Most of the hospitals are in the goalposts. They're in the range, the normal range you'd expect them to be. And therefore, we can't rank them. We can't say who's best, who's worst. I remember really well that that the parents really got stuck into talking about whether things were in the expected range was a very big question for them, a really empowering question for them. They understood that. And, And the other thing, of course, that they did was that they brought in the, you know, they really brought in an idea of layering the information of, of what comes at you first, rather than just giving me everything at yeah, once, yeah. giving them what they need yeah. in the order in which they need it, and to some degree, some priority. Yeah, exactly. But it's also, we know we're only producing quite a simple measure, because we're not talking about the mortality rates for particular types of operation we're aggregating over the different types but we can work out what the expected mortality would be because with huge amount of data analysis that christina and her colleagues have done we've got a formula that says for any particular baby with all their complications and their individual characteristics essentially what the chance is of them surviving the operation and then that provides their sort of expected mortality. Now, there's a few things. First of all, the layered information. We produce something that's almost like a spreadsheet. It's got the data and the graphics all in the same chart, so you can look between the two, so that it's not some complex thing. It's actually just part of a row that summarises the information about the hospital. But then you can drill down. We used their voices, didn't we? We used their voices to describe it. We played back what they said to us and put things in their words. But the success measure for me, was that this became something that didn't feel like it was trying to supplant their decision-making, but was a tool for their decision-making. One of the first things that parents pointed out was to talk in terms of survival rates and not mortality rates. Yeah, exactly. It's positive framing rather than negative framing. Can I talk about the issue of some of the wording? Because we really struggled, as I said, with trying to put words on this idea that, you know, if you operate on 100 babies some you know maybe one or two will die and we don't know who they're going to be now we can't talk statistical terms like binomial variation or things you just cannot use those terms because why do some babies die well we don't we don't know we can't use chance you certainly can't use words like fate or luck and what can we use i kept on asking everybody i met what can we use and they said oh um oh what about using the phrase because of unforeseeable factors not unforeseen, unforeseeable. The surgeon actually has got a, quite a good idea of what's wrong with the baby, but they never quite know exactly. So there's always some unforeseeable factors that sadly will lead some of these babies not to survive the operation. We tried that out immediately on, on the parents, the other groups, and that went straight in. It's now I use that yeah. all the time. Well, I got to the point, I think, with that relationship that you built with the parents and everyone involved, that when it came to launching this new way of receiving the information they effectively launched it for us didn't they 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 went out and put it out on their networks it was written about on mum's net and they felt like they had real ownership of it so I think you know that that was a good measure of that success but 
David, tell me a bit more about, you come at this from, I learned this from, about you when we worked together on this project. You come at this really from the perspective of some quite high aspirations about what the public is capable of taking on board. If only you get it right. If only you end up in the right place in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a statistician. I really believe in the, in the importance of statistics and opening them up to people. And that if you make a sufficient effort and listen sufficiently, you can make really quite subtle ideas comprehensible. And as I said, the, the comparing mortality or survival rates between the hospitals doing a children's heart surgery is not straightforward. So these are really complex ideas, but with a lot of patient engagement, a lot of discussion with focus groups, individual interviews, we produce something that is highly acceptable to to people with good design you can make something not just acceptable but valuable and and appreciated by the whole community more broadly do you think that institutions and, and authorities are sometimes too dismissive of the the public's ability to grasp a nuanced argument God, it really annoys me you know you get scandals come up like bristol and everything and then there's a big urge to oh, let's open up the data to everybody and then gradually it starts sort of being pulled back on and people say oh well you don't do it and then people use the argument oh people won't be able to understand it uh, they'll misuse it and this is the most awful you've heard it during covid you've heard it during you keep on hearing this argument it is really an offensive argument it's insulting to the intelligence of, of, of people out there who are who want to who are motivated to understand desperately patronizing and it also shows what it really means is we're not willing to make the effort <laughs> to make this useful and comprehensible and answer people's questions and, and to try to prevent the misunderstanding. So as soon as I hear that argument, God, my hackles, right? I get so angry because it is so, it's, it's actually saying we don't want people to know because it might kind of threaten our authority slightly or, you know, might make people ask difficult questions perhaps. Well, and if you think that people might misunderstand it, then you've got to make the effort to, to, to stop them doing so. Or, or indeed that, that people might draw different conclusions um, from understanding it. Well, exactly. People will draw different conclusions and there will be some people who might, you know, actually get hold of the wrong end of the stick and they might promote things and it's happened in COVID, happened in other things. That's just, that's just how it happens. That is the price of opening stuff up as people have a right to access for this information. I feel very strongly about this and it puts the it puts the onus upon the communicator, in fact, you know, the sort of the person who owns the data, to make every effort to both open it up, but not just to go blah and dump it on people, to make every effort that it's accessible, comprehensible, usable and accessible. We should be marching down the street with this on a banner, you know, and just keep on hammering it onto people. That, and that, that puts the onus on the communicator to live up to this. Ben Goldacre is an epidemiologist. He's Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine and Director of the Bennett Institute for Applied Data Science at the University of Oxford. He's been a popular writer on bad science for two decades. Well, 10 years ago, Ben came to see me. He was really frustrated. He'd written the book Bad Pharma, which explained that around half of the trials on the medicines we're using today had never been published. This meant we couldn't be confident about the true safety and effectiveness of treatments, we couldn't know whether proposed new medicines were actually better than what we already had. But it meant too that thousands of patients had gone through clinical trials without adding anything to medical knowledge and that a huge amount of cash was being spent on medical research that had been wasted and would go on to be wasted. Well, Ben's book Bad Pharma was selling well 
It was being reviewed everywhere. But nothing looked set to change. Ben, that day you came to see me, that was the moment we set up the All Trials campaign. Within a very short time from then, we had thousands of people signed up and pressing lawmakers to change regulations around the world. And it seemed that in the hands of ordinary people, your argument became more powerful. I think that's right. It was an interesting example of a phenomenon in what you might call investigative journalism, which is that sometimes facts which are in plain sight, but hidden behind a force field of modest technical complexity, just taking those facts and putting them in an easily intelligible story for the general public is in itself quite a transgressive act and can be quite impactful. So people had known for decades that there was this problem of clinical trials being conducted, completed and then never reported. But it was buried in the academic literature. There was a huge community of people doing research and working with the results of clinical research. And I think either they felt just that they were kind of constantly getting by. And so if they didn't publish their own trial, well, that was a bit annoying and, and they understood that you probably should, but it wasn't that big a deal. And on the other hand, people doing systematic reviews of the literature and producing summaries for doctors and patients to use, I think were held back by their own politeness, if you like. But we, we ran into resistance, didn't we? We ran into people who felt that this was a problem that medicine should sort out in private. I think that's right. What, what was really interesting to me was the different reactions we got from different communities over time. Right. So um, first up from Farmer, who you would have thought would be the big villain of the piece, we got a lot of dismissiveness um, in public, saying things like, oh, well, does this guy want us to waste time and money on putting the results of trials from years ago, ancient history, in public, or does he want us to spend money on finding the cure for cancer? Yeah. <laughs> However, the pharmaceutical industry, at the same time as being publicly and performatively dismissive, and in some cases actually you know, very, very aggressive, they were putting their house in order. And by the time we started building tools like the Trials Tracker, Mm -hmm. which is still running, eu.trialstracker.net and fdaaa.trialstracker.net, tracking compliance with the FDA Amendments Act. Um, if you look at that, you'll see that large drug companies in particular have phenomenally good compliance with their reporting requirements now, and it's actually academics who've fallen behind. With a combination of, of moving the public, moving the regulators and, and so on, we got there in the end, we got there. People's assumptions are different. Wouldn't you say we turned a corner? Yeah, yeah. That that's, that's not the culture any longer. Oh, definitely. Look, it was it was ugly and it was grim and... It was extraordinary to me that it took a small group of essentially self-appointed campaigners, albeit in some cases with sort of quite deep technical backgrounds, to come in and try and fix it. Yeah. And there were times when I felt very let down by, in particular, my own profession and, our, and the professional bodies. But, 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 they signed up. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, now, that if you start working at a pharmaceutical company or a royal college or wherever, the assumption is different. Your career will be shaped by an assumption that the discussion about the evolution of evidence behind medicine is out in the open. And that is a change of culture. And, and a lot of your other work is actually about promoting that different kind of culture, isn't it? Where we work out 
what is reliable evidence and how do we come to this conclusion in the public space? Yes, all of that has changed a lot over time, of course, because people like you and I were cheerleading for many years. And when we were first having those discussions, it was at a time when there weren't just cultural barriers to accessing information. There were also practical ones. You know, you, you, you had to go to a library to get access to the contents of an academic journal. Now, anybody can access clinical trial reports and journal articles describing in great technical detail the results of studies that inform the choices made by doctors with their patients. In the past, with all trials, we were talking about making access to information about the results of clinical trials publicly available so that people could either, if they were people with technical skills and time, use those study results to do good summaries of the evidence and, and help everyone adjudicate on which treatments work best in which patients. We're pushing a similar battle now in my group with tools like Open Safely. So that's a platform that we've built that allows approved researchers and NHS analysts to run code to do service monitoring and research projects across 58 million patients' GP records. Now, this is an unprecedented scale of data. It's a phenomenal resource for the nation. And to deliver it, we had to overcome various barriers. One, of course, was the privacy challenge. Just because you take names and addresses off people's health records, that doesn't make them in any sense anonymous. So we had to build a system that was resistant to that. We also wanted to build a system that was very transparent today. You can see a live log of all of the code, all of the statistical analysis code and data curation code, all of the code that's running against 58 million patients' records. Now, we built that partly to give public reassurance and transparency, but we also did it because we wanted the code for individual studies to be accessible to other people in the research community. Because we know, for example, that it's commonplace to have multiple studies on the same clinical question in the same or very similar data sets, produce slightly different answers or even radically different answers. And when that happens, often nobody knows why. Was it differences in the source population? Was it differences in the statistical model? When it comes to sharing the complete code, all of the code that drives a study, there are actually two reasons for pursuing that kind of transparency. One has very little to do with accountability. It's just simple efficiency. So the reasons to be transparent go well beyond anything sort of ideological or about probity and, and quality in science. But there is a second reason, which is to improve accountability. And there's no doubt that that does come at the cost that arguably you are giving some ammunition to people who might one way or another be out there to waste your time. Now, I don't discount that. However, I think on balance, it's better to have all of your data in public I think there is a net benefit for science and a net benefit for public trust. If you are using a platform like OpenSafely, which was designed to give complete transparency about everyone's act in the platform, then every user of that platform immediately becomes more trustworthy and their results become more trustworthy for the simple reason that if you were a malicious or sloppy analyst and you did analyse your data a hundred times until you got the, the most significant answer, we would notice you'd be doing it entirely in public. Everybody would see in the logs that this person, this organisation, had run a hundred slightly different 
uh, analyses and then only reported the one that gave them the most flattering result. I remember us encountering this argument around MMR when somebody said all trials will produce loads more of these MMR-type scandals where people will take some findings and, and overblow them and, and put them out of context. My concern there was that by hiding things away, it's very difficult for those of us who are independent of the research to say anything about it because we don't know for sure that something is as reliable as people say it is. I agree. So uh, in my mind, this was always a fatuous argument against transparency on clinical trials reporting. People said, well, the medical literature often contains lots of slightly different, slightly contradictory findings. And the more that we put in the public domain, the more we will foster uncertainty and mistrust in the public. Firstly, there's actually no concrete number on the number of clinical trials that have ever been run. But we know that somewhere between 400 and 600,000 have been published. So there is already a vast and enormous literature of somewhat mutually contradictory evidence out there. That's happened. The world didn't explode. All we're talking about is adding a few more studies to that pile. Good point. We're not saying for the first time ever some slightly contradictory evidence will appear in the public domain. We're saying... Contradictory evidence is just a part of everyday life in science. And one has to go through and think about why different studies have got slightly different results. I mean, are we going to have to remake these arguments now? You know, people have become fearful that since the outbreak of the pandemic, that too much information in the hands of a public is a bad thing. I'm starting to hear that come up again in ways that I thought we'd left behind a decade ago. Maybe we do have to remake the argument. Here's an interesting question, which I think is perhaps the kind of overarching one here. What's the point of putting this stuff in the public domain. First up, people often want it to be, ah, uh, we're putting that stuff in the public domain so that people can make informed choices about their own treatments. Well, yes and no. First of all, I don't think you're putting these things out there for people to necessarily practically use them in day-to-day -day life. However, there are two other good reasons to give people access to these skills and this knowledge of how to do that kind of critical appraisal and structured summary. One is... It's actually just really interesting. It's interesting in its own right. And I think that is actually a really good reason mm -hmm. for putting this stuff in the public domain. But there is a second, more concrete benefit that comes, which is if you know a bit about how that stuff is done and how it should be done well, then you know enough without actually redoing the entire systematic review and meta-analysis yourself, you might know enough to be able to look at somebody else's work and decide whether you think it's credible or not. In your vision of the future, in the society of the future, Ben, is it that we have a society where people know how to ask those questions? They know they should be thinking, is there a trial? So if somebody comes along and says, hey, I think drug addicts who are arrested for stealing a laptop from someone's house should be diverted to compulsory treatment rather than a six-month prison sentence. What happens next depends on, in some respects, why they're saying it, I suppose. If they say, because I think sending people to jail is horrible, then that's a moral question. If they're saying, because I think compulsory heroin addiction treatment is more likely to prevent them repeating their crimes over the next 12 years of their life, in that case, I want to see a randomised trial. Overall, I want to edge towards a world where it is normal and boring when someone says, I think we should do X because it will help children be better at maths. I want it to be normal and boring to say, how do you know? Listening to those four 
being reminded of what we've achieved. I've been struck by their optimism, but also by their sense that while there's a lot to play for, we have to play for it. And perhaps in new ways in a world of complex data and AI-based decisions, where people feel more powerless rather than empowered. I was influenced by people like Jacob Bronowski, who had talked about human values in science. It seems time that we emphasise the human value of scientific inquiry, make people part of that inquiry, develop their questions, talk about evidence openly. And if you're not convinced by my guests of the need to do this, I'll leave you with the words of another big influence on Sense About Science, the philosopher James Robert Brown, who, writing about scientific inquiry in the context of power, said, They've got the guns and the money. What's left to the rest of us is knowledge. <laughs>